Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This is Ryan Williams. Before we jump into the episode with Seth Godin, wanted to remind everyone my book, The Influencer Economy, How to Launch Your Idea, Share It with the World, and Thrive in the Digital Age, is available to order online. Go to InfluencerEconomy.com or email me, Ryan, at InfluencerEconomy.com for more info about the book and also our collaborative Launching Your Idea Influencer Coaching Program. So excited you're here for the episode with Seth Godin on stories from the influencer economy. Ryan Williams here. Seth Godin is someone that I look up to. He's a professional marketer, a experienced entrepreneur, and a best-selling New York Times author multiple times over. You may have read his book, The Dip, or Lynchpin, or Tribes, or many of the other countless amazing marketing and life books that he's produced and written. Each week on this podcast, I speak with a best-selling author, a world-renowned YouTube creator, or one of the top investors and startup founders in the world, hoping to coalesce a laboratory conversation around what makes people create their ideas. Seth Godin is someone that I've looked up to for a very long time. Let's jump into the episode. Seth Godin, welcome to the the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Um, So first question is when you're at a party or you're meeting someone at dinner or even at a coffee shop and they ask you what you do for a living, and they haven't read your work or know who you are, or how do you describe what you do? Uh, well, I try not to go to parties, and uh, more and more people already think they know what I do, which is sort of odd. It's very mysterious to walk up to someone and you've never met and have them think they know what you do. But what I think I do is I notice things, I try to explain them to myself and other people, and then I try to encourage people to do work that matters. So when someone comes up to you and they know you already and they think they know what you do and you're a marketer by trade, what, how does that feel as someone who I imagine you never had some aspirations to be recognized? Oh, not at all. Being slightly famous is the best possible outcome. Uh, when you get more famous than that, it's nothing but downside. Uh, but marketing is about ideas that spread, and I've been spreading ideas for 30 years, so it's pretty inevitable that they're going to spread to people I haven't met yet. And so how do you respond when people think that they know you? as So someone like myself, I've read The Dip and many of your books, and if I came up to you and already knew you, because I, I, I'm a fan of the band Fish from back in the day, and sure. they talk about uh, fame in one of their books and how they met Frank Zappa. And it was like a very disappointing experience because in their own heads, the, these musicians looked up to him, but they had no context. Like Frank had no idea who they were. So what's it like when someone has context about you, but you don't have context to them and they already think they know what they want to say to you? Well, you know, I remind myself how pretty often what a privilege it is to do what I do for a living. And I have no complaints about it. So my expectation when I meet somebody is to think hard about how I can serve them, to think hard about how we can get back on track to have an actual relationship. And uh, I don't have any uh, anger or frustration about the fact that we live in a celebrity culture where people would rather have a selfie than read a book. Uh, You know, it's easy to get frustrated at that, but I'd rather not. I'd rather figure out who this person is and what they're trying to do. 
And when you, uh, when I, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts that you've been on, and uh, knowing from your blog, you you look at Zig Ziglar as one of your early inspirations, and he was a motivational speaker. And you've talked about how you used to listen to his recordings in cars. And what was it about Zig that really responded and resonated with you when you were younger? Well, let me talk a little bit about listening in cars, because this is a podcast after all, and people <laughs> are listening in cars. Uh, we can make deposits and withdrawals from our mindset. And the withdrawals happen without our permission. They are rejections. They are stumbles. They are things that didn't go the way we needed them to. They are mistakes. And if you confront enough withdrawals and don't make any deposits, sooner or later you're going to go bankrupt. And what I learned from Zig is that whether I needed it or not, putting one more hour into the bank of my head paid off. That podcasts are great. You can get new information. But the best podcasts you listen to three times, five times, seven times because they're feeding you. And I think that's an overlooked asset that most people don't exploit. Um, you mean like re, re-engaging or like re-listening to something that matters? Versus that's right. So, you know, if I'm, the podcast I am particularly proud of is the one I did with Krista Tippett on On Being. And I've been told by people that they've listened to it 20 times. And that's what great audio can do. Because you're no longer listening for the plot. You know the plot. You're listening for the cadences. You're listening for the stuff to get past your conscious barriers, to get into your subconscious and talk to you about possibility and art and connection and positivity. Because so many of the things in your real life are tearing that down, that going through the practice of adding it up is worthwhile. Actually, to that point, so I interviewed Brian Koppelman, host of The Moment, and screenwriter on my podcast, and he was telling me that he had just interviewed you. I listened to that interview that you all did multiple times. And it was in, I brought up the imagery of you in your car listening to tapes of Zig Ziglar because that actually was one of the conversation points that resonated with me. And thinking about you as a speaker and a writer and back in your early days, I, I think it's a fascinating thing to think about the prequel of Seth or, or anyone that makes them who they are. And so when you were inspired by... Zig, like, what was it that you were looking for at that moment in your life? Um, well, I was, by most external measures, failing and failing repeatedly, uh, being rejected, not coming up with the best projects, uh, not having a strategy for where I wanted to go. What, what age was this around? From the time I was 27 to 30. 30-something. Um, being a book packager was a great way for me to get started because you don't need to raise any money. Uh, it was a difficult way for me to get started because I didn't understand the worldview of my customer. And uh, it took me a while to get my arms around who they were and what they wanted to buy. And that was a frustrating period for me. Uh, the, you know, I, I did a blog post a long time ago called Heroes and Mentors. Most people who are running around looking for a mentor aren't going to find one because mentoring doesn't scale. Mentoring uh, is mostly a one-sided activity in terms of the significant benefits it pays off. And I haven't had very many mentors in my career, 
But heroes, heroes are easy to find. Heroes are people who don't even know you exist, but who through their actions, through their work, through their words, help you mentor yourself. And I'm super fortunate that I ended up working with and becoming friends with almost all of my heroes through the years. But I didn't set out to do that. I merely said, I respect what this person has to say. I can listen to this again and again. It'll get under my skin even better than if I was stopping by his house uh, one afternoon a week to ask about my current problem. Uh, I read a quote actually that segues into a question I had about making your schedule before you start, which is something that Zig had taught you early on. And when you're failing and working out your ideas, it's not the most strategic time to go get coffee or check your email for, for a couple hours. Um, what, what, does that, what does that mean to you, that, that term about making your schedule before you start? Well, this, is, this comes into the dip. You know, the, what we know is that uh, it's February and almost everyone who joined a gym right after Christmas is going to quit last week or next week. That we know that most people join a gym because they feel slow and fat and they've been inside too much and with all good intent. But then eight weeks later, it's hard and they quit. Well, that's why most people aren't fit because they quit when it's hard. So the way you make your schedule before you start is you know that it's going to be hard. So you commit to going not all at once at the beginning, but twice a week, every week for a year. If you do that, it's going to work. So this idea that you acknowledge that something hard is coming and in the middle of all the excitement of getting started, that's when you commit to being able to stick through the hard parts. And The Dip is one of my favorite books. It's actually, I give it away to people because I feel like all of us get to this point where you have to dedicate yourself to being the best in the world at something or it's it's okay to quit. And that I, uh, I'm a big fan of that book and so I've actually talked about it a lot on the podcast before. So, Oh, thanks. Yeah, and uh, actually, a f- side note, I wasn't even sure if I was going to tell you this, but I gave uh, I read that book when I was at a company and I was not getting a raise and not getting the respect I wanted. And I contributed a lot, so they weren't going to give us year-end reviews. And so I read the book, and I said, I need to figure out where I stand with this company, if I'm going to be the best in the world at this job and as a marketing for a big corporation, or am I going to quit or look for new work? And my wife and I had just gotten married. She's like, well, you got to demand that you get a review. And I got the review, and they told me they were not giving me a raise. And then three months later, I was laid off. And I completely believe that I rocked the boat a little too much and they laid me off. Greatest thing ever was getting laid off. I got severance. I found a new job in two weeks. Went to this awesome company, machinima.com. I was an early startup employee there. And it really, it was clarity. So now I give that book away to people because I think it's, if you're ever at a crux in your life, it's, it's really smart to evaluate that it's okay to not keep doing something if you aren't committed to being the best at it. Well, in fact, the only way to become the best at one thing is to quit something else. And the thesis of the book is we live in a culture where supposedly quitting is a bad thing. But people quit stuff all the time. They're not ballerinas anymore like they were when they were seven. What we need to do is quit strategically, not quit when it's hard, but quit so we can free up the resources to do something that's really hard. And... I have little doubt that if you had committed to becoming exceptional at that company that fired you, you would have. But 
that commitment would have required quitting a whole bunch of other things, quitting habits, quitting points of view, quitting the ways you were spending various kinds of time. And it probably wasn't worth that journey. So you ended up going to a place where you could make an impact by committing to what it takes to make an impact. And a lot of people ask me about that book. Well, how do you tell the difference between something you should quit and something you should stick? And I disappoint them by telling them that the answer is up to them. My job is to point out the question. And most people don't even ask the question. Which is, is the, you list a quote at the beginning of that book from Vince Lombardi about quitting. And I, I can't, I wrote it down. I can't remember it, but it's essentially like winners never quit. Quitters never win. Is that right? Yeah. And he was wrong. Yeah. Right. Is. I mean, there's so many things about football that are wrong, but that one is totally right. wrong. Because that's another quitter, podcast. <laughs> quitters win all the time. And, you know, just go down the list of an organization that said we're going to do one thing and now they do something else. Nintendo was a playing card company. Well, they quit the playing card business because they realized the best they'd ever do in the playing card business was a tie for third. And by quitting that, they freed up the resources to invent the Game Boy. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the. The opportunity cost it takes to dedicate yourself to something, you know, takes your mind and body and actions away from other things that you could do really well. Right. Um, so, yeah, I have uh, in my book that I'm writing, um, Bill Simmons, who uh, just started his own company after leaving ESPN. For 15 years, I write about um, how he built community before he worked at ESPN. And I, I reference The Dip because I love that book so much. And he reached a point where he had... Uh, was making $30,000 a year as an internet journalist in the late 90s. And most of his friends from college were making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And he just quit bartending because he made 30K and his wife and at the time his girlfriend and his his family told him not to quit. And then now 15 years later, he's leading on the cutting edge of of media. And it's like looking back at so many people's careers, I mean, what... When you were inspired to write that book, was it something that you went through or is it something that you identified in other people that you saw? You know, books come from various odd places. I wrote Purple Cow because my friend Lionel passed away and I wanted to commemorate what he had done. And so I could dedicate a book to him, but first I had to write one. Uh, the dip was my response to three or four people who in a very well-meaning way, had asked me for insights about what they should do next and didn't get it. So rather than explaining to all four of them, I just wrote a book. And how long did that take you? Two weeks. Two weeks. Some books take a year. They're not all easy, but I write like I talk, and I wrote it. And there we were. It was done, and I intentionally did not turn it into a researched, polished tome. I made it super short so that people who are in a hurry to do something else will actually make it all the way through. And what, so your goal with that book, like you said before, is to identify the situation or potential problem that people may be going through, and then it's well, up to them to decide? Yeah, I mean, my job is, I think, to get under people's skin. I can't sit with you, I can't follow you around, I can't lecture you, but maybe I can put an image or an idea under your skin, and then in the middle of the night, three weeks later, it'll keep you awake. That's my job. And I have heard 
more people tell me that the dip has done that than any other book I've ever written. That's awesome. I mean, when you set out to write that book, did it, did you think that it would take off like it did or it really, what, how many books have you written overall? Just to step back for a second, including the ones that you, cause I know when you were shipping books, you wrote a book almost every month. Yeah, we did a book a month for 10 years. So that's 120, but I don't count those. Um, since then I've done 18 bestsellers. So you can add it up. It's probably 138. So 18 out of 138 bestsellers. Well, yeah, you can't really do it that way because it's been 18 in a row. Uh, (laughs) That was because I shifted what I did for a living. I went from being a packager to an author in quotation marks. That what packagers did was before the internet, there was a need for complicated books that would be difficult for one person to write. Almanacs, uh, you know, the secret history of your name, books that... Uh, a team of people would produce the way you would produce a movie. So most of the books I did as a book packager weren't designed to be bestsellers, though we had a few bestsellers. They were designed to fit a niche in the market. But when I wrote Permission Marketing, I had no team. Every word I write since then has been me. There's nobody who writes my words other than me. And I had a different objective, and that was to build a voice that would be consistent, to build an arc that would tell a story and to do it in my voice. And so that's what's happened since permission marketing. And what year was that? 99. So do you think that was, was that 99 like your moment where you just started and you feel like your career opened into a new path? Like it went towards speaking and writing and an entrepreneurship in a different light than previously when you're, you're book packaging? Like, I, I guess it was more of a pivot at that point. Well, or? I mean, before the, the permission marketing, I invented what we know today as commercial email, permission marketing, and started an internet company to do it. Um, so that was 10 years from 89 to 99, building a company we ended up selling to Yahoo. That's so right. as an entrepreneur, most people would say that was the peak of my career. Um, after that, I took a deep breath and I said, well, you know, I'm 40 years old. What do I want to do now? And what I wanted to do was the craft of writing and changing people, not the job of being an entrepreneur and generating revenue for investors. And so when you wanted to help people, why'd you pick books as the medium? I love people? books. Books yeah. are awesome. Books are, uh, until recently, timeless, 500-year-old tradition. The people in the book industry are good people. They don't steal your ideas. They don't rip you off. You may notice that books are sold next to each other in one store, and no author complains about the fact that their books are next to other people's books, and that, in fact, authors blurb each other's books all the time. Right? You don't find very often Larry Ellison blurbing somebody else's software product. That's because books are additive and they contribute to the culture and they're for smart people or people who want to become smart. Uh, They easily work their way around the world uh, and you can fit them on one little shelf. So there's so many things about books that I love. I haven't written a book in a while. I have no plans to write another book, but it was a really great privilege to be an author. And then in, so 99 when Permission Marketing came out, like one of your theories was about uh, turning as a marketer, turning strangers into friends and then friends into customers. And that was one of the leading perspectives about, you know, not interrupting people 
by marketing to them, like actually developing a relationship. Yeah, and so I don't know how old you are, but I'm thirty. You know, I'm thirty eight. I'm getting up there. Yeah. So sixteen years ago, you have no idea what the world was. Like. I was in college, and I barely had email at that point. Right. So the Direct Marketing Association could have been called the Spamming Association. <laughs> Because the entire mindset was buy some names, send them some mail. And the magic of direct marketing was you had to buy stamps. And stamps cost money. So that meant you couldn't send everyone in America a letter. You couldn't afford it. So I'm watching what's going on. And I see that email comes along. And I say, wait a minute. As soon as direct marketers figure out that email is free, they'll just send an email to everybody every day, forever. And once they start doing that, email will be broken and it will work for no one. And I was actually banned from events at the Direct Marketing Association for several years for daring to get on stage and say, we have to stop spamming people. We have to be in favor of regulations against spamming people. And we have to send anticipated, relevant, and anticipated personal and relevant notes to people who want to get them. That was heresy in those days. It was like not something that marketers wanted to hear. And I am still surprised at how the world has shifted, but it is still to this day common wisdom that you will always do better if you engage with people who want to hear from you. And that earning permission, whether it's with one of those savings cards you get at the drugstore or logging into Facebook, these things are at the core of our culture now. Like, Google makes all their money from permission marketing, every penny, by showing ads to people who want to see the ads. Yeah. I mean, we when I worked at Disney, we helped launch their social media. We were a startup that was acquired by them because they were running banner ads that no one clicked on. And they were afraid of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and people clicking on opting in to experience a Disney trailer for Toy Story. And so it's amazing to think that elections you just sent people direct mailers to campaign for candidates and now it's completely changed in this era so then when you were you know reaching that point where you wrote that first book was that when you felt like you were building a community of people that were were subscribing and opting into what you were you were saying beyond just the entrepreneurship of building a tech product well so yo-yo dine was a giant opt-in we you know, when we said opt-in, people didn't know what we meant. We built an opt-in company. We were sending more email every day than any entity in the world. So I wrote Permission Marketing to help explain to customers what Yo-Yo Dine was building. And after that book worked, and then I left Yahoo, it was a long, long year of quiet before I decided I wanted to write real books. And then I wrote Unleashing the Idea Virus. Um, but the permission marketing was a, I wrote it opportunistically because I knew how to make a book and most people don't. And I knew I needed to explain to people what this thing was. And then permission marketing became more of a, it's, it has a legacy. Now people understand it. It's more commonly understood. But back then it was more of a, like you're saying, a risk. Cause right. But that's the magic of books is that when they work, everyone says, of course. Yeah. Um, and then when you wrote, uh, when you so you've done a great job of using terms as the title of your book, like you, you know the 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 dip is a great term, or you talk about you know finding and building a tribe. Like when you're writing, do you 
do you are you inspired by like old cultures like when you talk about your tribe it goes intrinsically back to how humans have interacted for centuries like how how does your creative process work where you come up with these these words and terms like permission marketing that stick well so let's think about it from a marketer's point of view if you just write a book called you know 27 thoughtful processes that can help you get email response rates to go up <laughs> right it's pretty hard to own any share of mind it's pretty hard to be seen as the originator or something and it's very hard for the idea to spread one way that business ideas spread is that someone who gets them uses the word in conversation to someone who doesn't and the other person says wait wait what does that mean so one of my favorite stories is I got a note from a guy he said he worked for a matrix organization so he had two bosses one of his bosses came to him and said hey Bob we need to get some of that purple cow stuff around here well Bob had never heard of it but he sort of ignored the guy and then the next day his other boss came to him and she said Bob, what do you know about purple cows? And so now Bob was intrigued. So he discovered the book. He read the book. And at the meeting with two of them a week later, he said, so I was reading the book. And the two of them turned to him and said, there's a book? That's how you know you did it right. Right? That you don't want people to learn the term because there's a book. You want people to learn the term because it's important, because it's a name that describes something that needed a name. And my books, if I can describe something that needs a name, are generating value even for people who don't read them. So you don't necessarily think about writing a book to market it to people? You think more of the idea needs some, a name and it's out there and you're the one that would come up with the name because you want to write about it? Yeah, ever since Permission Marketing, I have not sought to make a book that would sell. I don't keep track of how many copies I've sold. I don't keep track of the bestseller list anymore. I don't read my reviews on Amazon. That's not why I'm doing it. And what's it like when you go and speak in front of a crowd? And like you, with the dip, you did a great event-based um, tour where people bought 2,500 books. Then you would go to that city or town. I think you went to 15 or 16 places. Like what's it like when you reach a crowd and you're talking about something that you wrote in a vacuum or you wrote by yourself and then suddenly it's reaching people that you've never met before? Well, I will tell you the first time you do it for any given idea is really, really scary because you spend a year writing the book. You know the book's going to be the thing you're talking about for the next year and you stand up in front of the crowd and talk about it. And if they don't get it, you're doomed. <laughs> you mean people that haven't read the book? Well, almost no one reads a book. So yes, the people who haven't read the book. So I wrote a book called Survival is Not Enough. Uh, Charles Darwin wrote the foreword. And it's my most complicated, most researched, hardest book that I ever wrote. And when I gave talks about it, everyone's eyes glazed over. Everyone, people, what, every, everyone, either eyes glazed over? Yeah. People couldn't get their arms around the complexity of what I was trying to teach them. And that was a challenge because giving the speech again isn't going to help. You got to figure out, okay, how do I step back here? Where, do I, where did I lose everybody? How do I reconfigure that? And that's not easy. But one talk you give really well that resonates is the, we talk about uh, the lizard brain and the Stephen Pressfield and the resistance. And it's, it seems like you've done a great job of articulating that story about how people like have a voice in the back of their head and they are afraid to ship and they're afraid to finish their product because 
they don't take breaths or they don't recalibrate and focus. Like, what was your, like, where did you get the term for the lizard brain? Do you mind explaining that for people that aren't familiar with it? Um, Sure. Well, first, thank you for the kind words. Uh, I was researching linchpin, and researching involves an enormous amount of reading and clicking. And I came across this concept from psychology in the 1940s, in which they discovered that the amygdala, which is our little almond-sized brainstem piece, is exactly the same part of the brain that's in a lizard, in the same part of a brain that's in a fox or any other wild animal. It worries about revenge and reproduction. It worries about safety most of all. And as human beings evolved, we added more and more layers around that part of our brain. The furthest one in the front, the neocortex, is where we're busy thinking creative thoughts. Well, the thing is that the lizard brain is much, much closer to the rest of our body than any other part of our brain. It can flood us with fight or flight. It is uh, hardwired to be the first line of defense for good reason, because in caveman days, if you didn't have one, you'd be dead. So it protects us. It did, but now it hurts us. And the reason is it's very clever. It puts out the chemicals and then your brain comes up with a rationale for why it's right. But it's not, but it comes up with one. So if you think about you know, the, the people in Hungary in the year 1200 who rioted uh, because there was an immigrant population there that they didn't like. The ro- anything, anytime a riot is going on, it's the lizard brain at work. Mm-hmm. You can't rationally have a riot. Right. And as a result, they ended up killing all these people and then losing many, many battles to the Khan um, because they weren't being rational. They were letting the lizard take over. Well, if we're talking about it today, here you are with a podcast, and there are all these people who say, I wish I was Ryan. Well, but they could have been you, because it doesn't cost anything. They just were afraid. And they come up with all these reasons why they're not really afraid. They're busy. They're this. They're this. No, they're afraid. Because the definition of fear is, as Zig would say, false evidence appearing real. It's the lizard brain making a mistake, thinking something is dangerous when it's not. And we can't make the fear go away, but what we can do is dance with it. And so shortly after I did all this research, I don't know, remember exactly how it happened. A copy of The War of Art ended up on my desk. Great book. And literally I said, why wasn't I informed? <laughs> how was it that I had been writing about this stuff and talking about this stuff and no one had mentioned to me this book? And in the book, Steve has his own riff on the lizard brain. He calls it the resistance. And uh, he wrote his book before mine, and credit needs to go where credit is due. I also like the way Steve talks about it. So now when I talk about it, I talk about both the lizard and the resistance. And I am proud to count Steve as a dear friend. And I even published uh, the prequel to The War of Art, a book called Do the Work, that is super important. Everyone should read the War of Art or Do the Work, everyone. Yeah, War of Art is a great book. I love how we can always get in the way of ourselves to make excuses. And you talk about this in your talks is that we've, I want to start a garden. Well, I don't have time because I have two kids and a mortgage and a full-time job. And we can keep just putting things off for infinite amount of time because we can always find reasons not to do stuff. And how do you think that, like for me, it's like this book, I'm three months away from publishing it. And it's the, it's the hardest part of the process. And so when I was researching this 
conversation we were about to have. It's like, you're right. It's There's something intrinsic about us that, like, when it's cl- close to finishing the, the game and, you know, win and hit that three-point shot like Steph Curry, that there's there's something about sometimes our mechanisms, you know, shut things down so we don't perform as well as, we, as we've envisioned ourselves to. The three-point shot is a fascinating thing to riff on for one second here. Yeah. Um, so because of racism, the NCAA banned the slam dunk. Uh, they found that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and others were scoring too many points. And for many years, it was against the rules. Uh, then the game, when the dunk came back, in, and pro ball, it never left, became uh, too cluttered in the key. So they invented the three-point shot as a way to reward people from not all hung, hanging out under the basket. And what we're seeing with Curry and a few other people is that the economics of a three-point shot are so overwhelmingly strong that you can completely win games by being good at it. The question that's interesting and worth asking is, why don't more people take three-point shots? And the answer is the resistance. The answer is, if you take a three-point shot and you miss it, you look like a grandstanding ball hog who just let your team down. Whereas if you go for a layup and miss it or you get stuffed, no big deal. You're just playing the game. And so there's a cultural imperative that says, no, 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 no. Don't let the spotlight get on you. Don't be the person that everyone's going to get the blame if it doesn't work. Because in the old days, if you did that, you'd get thrown out of the village and you'd die. Now, it just means you lost the game. But we're still inclined to keep our voice down, to not speak up, to not contribute, to not say, here, I made this, because we're hardwired to avoid it. So do you think when you were an entrepreneur and you sold your company to Yahoo and you'd gone to Stanford Business School that you were programmed and hardwired and taught to be a, an entrepreneur and that when you wrote your books that that was – like, you, did you have to reprogram what you were thinking to do that? Uh, I'm not sure I'll go with that stretch. You can add, ask Brad Feld. Brad knew me back then. Okay. Um, yeah, I just, he, he just did, on, was just on the show. He did the due diligence. On okay. The first investment that Fred Wilson made, which was us. Um, Oh, really? Yeah, first independent investment after he became a had his own firm. Oh, wow. Anyway, so it's, it's all one big circle. It's going, we all know each other. Yeah. We have meet, all of us have meetings in the back room. Guy Kawasaki I met in, two, in 1986, 85. Anyway. Uh, so were these no. are your, your peers at that point? Because you mentioned previously that you were fortunate enough to meet some of your heroes and become friends with them. Yeah. Who were, was, I do want to, when you finish this answer, I want to ask you that question because that was, I made okay. a note. Okay, make a note. So anyway, no, being an entrepreneur is for many people an exercise in ego and self-control and dancing with fear because you can't talk to your boss. You don't have one. Can't talk to your board. Can't talk to your employees. Can't talk to your spouse. You're on your, your own. Your spouse is tired of hearing about it. Yeah. So no, there's not a lot of rewiring that's required to go from entrepreneur to author. What is required if you want to do it well is to keep track of something completely different. That you don't keep track, if you're smart, of royalties and advances because they're meaningless. You keep track of who did you touch, who did you change, who would miss this book if it disappeared. And entrepreneurs aren't really taught to think that way. No, it's more like, can I get an exit 
what's my valuation and it's more capitalistic. It's not necessarily about, you may reach the employees and you may mentor people or your product may change people's lives. But yeah, there's a, there's definitely a mythology with entrepreneurship and the tech industry of changing lives, but really it's just a lot of cash and transactions and people making a ton of money. Um, so you, sorry, go ahead. No, I was waiting for you to go back to the other question. How yeah, well, the other question is great because, you know, you, you through this podcast and my book, my book process as well with the influencer economy, I've been able to talk to people that I've read and looked up to, and it's been awesome. And it's like in this age, I get to collaborate because I have this platform. And by no stretch of the imagination do I think I'm, you know, somebody big in the media or in the universe, but it's just, it's where we are in this modern day. So when you got to meet some of your heroes and who were those folks and and what was it like you know taking that step to talk to them well first i would say if you have more than a thousand listeners you are big in the media world because more than a thousand people are dedicating an hour of their precious time to listening to you and 99.9% of the people in the world can't say that they have a following like that uh, so give yourself some i've, I've reached that threshold yes um, so thank you. That's, it's hard to really sometimes like to talk about, take that deep breath, right? Because you don't want, it's just, it's so, there's so much out there now. You don't, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because there's still so much work to do. Um, but yeah, a thousand is like, was it Kevin Kelly's a thousand true fans? That's you know, right. You so you, there's a difference between a thousand listeners and a thousand true fans, yeah. but you're on, you're on your way. Yes. Anyway, um, I met Jay Levinson, the guy who wrote guerrilla marketing and, helped him see that he could do more than just a couple gorilla books and that led him on the path to now there's more than a hundred. I did four of them with him. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a speech with Zig um, in Milwaukee. That was thrilling. Uh, I uh, almost did a project with Tom Peters a very long time ago and uh, have collaborated with him and a bunch of other people on a book I did for charity called The Big Moo. Uh, the Big Moo ended up raising a quarter of a million dollars for three important charities. So that was pretty cool. Um, so, you know, the, the thing is that science fiction authors and business authors aren't nearly as busy as most people think. And if you can figure out how to contribute first, not to them, but to the world, uh, you'd be amazed at how often people see your contribution and want you to make more of it. There's a... Derek Sivers, who I just spoke to, yeah. he he, uh, he told me he was telling me how you helped him with his book cover with like the kid on the beach. I published his book. Oh, you did? Yes, sir. This is back in before in before ninety nine, or were you still? No, no, no. I uh, I did a project with Amazon, and I published ten bestsellers, two of which I wrote, eight of which I did not, and I hunted Derek down because uh, he and I had been at TED together, and I thought he was a singular voice, and we worked a lot together on making that book. Um, he's a joy to work with. He did not like the cover at first, but he came around. And now the book is out in a new edition from Penguin and is a fabulous book called Anything You Want. It's a great book. Yeah, he did. And they, they added a, a different cover to it. Yes. Um, so when you reached out to, you collaborate with someone like him, like, do you think that at that point, like you met him, is it, does it sound like at TED? Is that how you connected with him? Yeah, he wrote a post about guy number three almost the same day I did. And um, 
And what post is that? If you do a Google search on guy number three, you'll find it. It's got a video in it of a guy at a music festival. Oh, yeah. No, I love that. He it talks about how to start a movement. Right. It's the guy wasted dancing in the middle of a field. Allegedly wasted. He might just be happy. <laughs> okay. Or both. <laughs> so um, so he was allegedly. getting ready. He was getting ready. I've to been to enough first... of those festivals. That's not alleged. <laughs> he was getting ready to do his first TED Talk. And he wanted to show me what he had come up with because he knew that he and I had both posted about the same video. And, uh, you know, you meet people and you can tell that they're people like us. And we hit it off great. Yeah, he was a wonderful interview. I talked to him remotely via New Zealand. And what do you think about Access Now versus back when you were writing your first books? Because now with the Internet's connected mobile devices, like you can listen to my podcast in your car now. Like what was it like? Because... Now people, it's like a profession to grow a platform. But back when you were authoring books, that was a great medium just to reach people. But now there's so many other markets. Like what is it like now in your eyes versus when you were just writing these books that would go into bookstores? Okay, so there's a couple questions there. The first one is I was one of the first people who aggressively started to build a platform. So with permission marketing, I collected email addresses and gave people a third of the book for free. With Unleashing the Idea Virus, we made it so that it would spread. That was heresy in those days. Now it's required. Um, what did you do with Unleashing the Virus to make um, it spread? I gave it away for free. Oh, you did? Okay, 100%. Every, 100%. And so 4 million people got it in the first three months. Wow. Uh, this was before many people had ever even visited a blog. I mean, it was early days. The... Um, the point is that access is way overrated. I think that if you're saying, wow, I'm, I know Seth Godin's email address. I'm going to write to him. You have done it wrong. Do not send me email. Access is not the point. The point is, what's your reputation like? What's your following like? What's the impact you are making on people who want to hear from you? Not how do you reach people who don't want to hear from you? And so that doesn't start with how do I reach out to people? It starts with how do I make something people want me to reach out about? And, and for you, it's, you know, intrinsically, I, everyone I speak with, a common trait is like accessibility and people are accessible and not just like email me, but it's, you go on a lot of different podcasts and you, you talk to a new generation of authors, writers, or marketers. And why is it important to you to to keep collaborating with people that are just starting out or getting their foot? Well, I certainly don't do it to sell books because it doesn't sell books. No. I do it because it's a privilege, because it's a chance to talk to someone like you who's a volunteer, who has a point of view. Um, and the same way there were people all along the way who saw what I was trying to make, I see what you're trying to make. And this is a worthwhile way for me to spend some time. And uh, we're going to wrap up in a minute. But what um, for generosity, I, I love a lot of your writing on generosity. And you talk about Zig Ziglar as well as someone who believed in that. Like what do you, in the modern economy and people, you know, in the digital world, um, how important is it to be generous and just give stuff to people and not looking for something back? Right. So this is where Zig and I disagree. You know, Zig said, you can get anything in life you want if you just help enough other people get what they want. And my perspective is, 
wow, you're really lucky. Why don't you just help other people get what they want? Period. And it's not one day you'll get something in return. It's the act of helping is getting something in return. That we look at something like Wikipedia, which was built using a billion hours of volunteer labor. What did the people who work on it get? Well, what they got was Wikipedia. So we have this opportunity in this connection economy not to look at it through the eyes of scarcity and Adam Smith, but to look at it as an opportunity to make a difference. That's great. And then, um, so Influencer Economy book, I'm close to shipping it. And this has been a great interview to have in that context. So uh, thank you for your time. It's a pleasure. Keep making this ruckus, please, Ryan. I will do. And uh, I will talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. All right. Thank you, Seth. That's awesome. That was Seth Godin. I'm in my driveway at home. And that was one of the more gratifying conversations I've had on the podcast, maybe in business. It was validating for me in a lot of ways because I look up to Seth. He's a hero of mine in the marketing and entrepreneur world. So if you'd like to learn more about him, I recommend The Dip, Lynchpin, and Tribes are some of his uh, favorite books of mind. Also, if you want to help the podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the podcast organically. And if you want a, a hit sheet of the top seven habits of influencers, you could sign up for my email list at influencereconomy.com. It's a digest slash tip sheet that I put together based on my two and a half years of interviews with influencers. So thank you again. Excited to see you all on the book tour this summer. I have LA confirmed at this point, so check out the Influencer Economy book as well. Thank you so much. (laughs) 